0: Now, if you've been here for any of this series, then you know that we begin each week with some practical tips. If if you're a guest for for today, visiting for the first time, then you need to know James is the most practical book in the New Testament. And so in recognition of that practicality, we've been offering some practical hints and tips every Sunday just to kind of kick things off. And I've had several of you say, well, can can you go through some of them again and remind us? Well, when the series is over, we're gonna post them all on the website uh, so that you can get to all of them and maybe some others that we weren't able to share because uh, you all have given me lots of great things, and so I've tried to pick just a handful each week to share. So here here they are for this week, okay? Use a bit of toothpaste to polish a CD or DVD if you have problems with skips. There's just enough abrasive in the toothpaste that it will polish it up really, really well. Uh, Leftover cardboard tubes are great for cord storage. If you are always getting your cords tangled up, just start using cardboard tubes. It'll make it easy for you wrap Christmas lights around coat hangers to keep them from being tangled. Oh, I wish somebody had told me that 35 years ago. Man, that is a good idea. Leftover Pringle cans are perfect for storing leftover spaghetti noodles, uncooked, that is. All right, don't try to store cooked (laughs) spaghetti noodles. It doesn't work. If you get mosquito bites regularly, apply soap, to the area and scrub for 30 to 45 seconds. I'm told that the itch and the bump will disappear shortly, but you gotta scrub for 30 to 45 seconds in that area. Preventively, I've also been told this, and I'm gonna check out both of these things because I really uh, deal with the mosquito bites uh, during the, the uh, summer time of the year. Um, take a sheet of bounce or another dryer sheet. I'm assuming other dryer sheets will work equally well. Tie it to a belt loop when you're outside because the scent in the sheet repels the mosquitoes. And so when you're outdoors, that will keep the little bloodsuckers away. That one I will try as well. Buy a chalkboard eraser and keep it in the glove compartment of your car. When the windows fog up, the eraser will work better than a rag or a napkin that you may have sitting around. So we might try that. In our text today, James reminds us that our lives are kind of like a mist or a fog. What's his point you say? Well, it all has to do with Trust. So let's take a look and see what we can learn about life and trust and consequences from James' perspective. And we'll get to that fog and mist bit just a little bit later on in the sermon. Several years ago, there was a popular game show in American history called Truth or Consequences. Some of you will undoubtedly remember that, uh, where ordinary people were contestants, and they ended up having to do odd and unusual stunts or tricks. Now, it actually started on radio back in the 1940s, but made the transition to uh, the television culture. And the most popular and famous of all of the hosts was Bob Barker who hosted the show from 1956 to 1975, and here's how Bob Barker ended every episode. Bob Barker, saying goodbye, hoping all your consequences are happy. Now, he went through that pretty quick. Here's here's actually what he said. Hoping all your consequences are happy ones. (laughs) Uh, There are consequences which grow out of our beliefs and our actions, but it would be nice if all of our consequences were happy ones, wouldn't it? In James's rather straightforward, typical manner, he bursts that bubble pretty quick, reminding us that most of the time, uh, the consequences that we suffer are not always so happy, and the consequences we face come from where we put our trust. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the, the the matter of trust being integral to our faith. You know, if you talk about faith, but you're only talking about belief, then you're not talking about faith. If you, th- if you think faith is simply believing in something, that's not true. Faith, by its definition, is a combination of both belief and trust. You live the tr- leave the trust factor out, you don't have faith. You just have belief. So James isn't talking about trust from a definition standpoint today. He's talking about it from an application standpoint of it, uh, today. It's vital to determine the object of our faith. It's not just about being trusting. It's about where you put your trust that matters. And so he breaks it down in chapters 4 and 5 this way. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4, verse 11, or you can follow on the screen if you don't. Uh, and the first thing he says, don't trust your ability to scrutinize. And this is what he said in verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks for against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, we're really good at scrutinizing. We do that all the time. You see somebody walking down the street and you begin to scrutinize, wonder where they live, wonder where they come from, wonder what kind of a job they do. People that you know, when you see character that's a little bit unusual for them, you begin to scrutinize. What are they doing? Why are they doing that? What's happening in their life? If you're a non-believer and you know somebody's a Christian, you really scrutinize their life because you're trying to watch for them to foul up in some way to say, see, Christians are hypocrites, just like I always thought. We're really good at scrutinizing the character of other people. But we gloss over this passage of Scripture because we don't think we're slanderous. James says, do not slander one another. But we don't do that. The problem is we don't understand what the word slander means. The word slander, we assume, means some libelous statement or some terrible accusation. Actually, the word slander in the New Testament simply means any speech that demeans or belittles someone else, whether it's true or false. Now, we're pretty guarded against not sharing what we know to be false, but, you know, we show little reserve in sharing the truth, no matter how painful it may be. But James says, we don't have the right to share something painful about somebody else, especially if we know it will hurt them or harm their credibility. James says, when you do that, you put yourself above the law of God. And that, folks, is a dangerous place to be. And he also says this, that when you do that, you tarnish your own ability to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. When you speak against other people, not only does it affect their character, it affects your character. It's a bad reflection on you. And if it's a bad reflection on you, it's a bad reflection on Jesus Christ. The famous German Lutheran minister Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, the angry word is a blow struck at our brother, a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. But a deliberate insult is worse For we openly disgrace our brother in the eyes of the world, causing others to despise him. Do you understand what Bonhoeffer had to say? He said, it's bad when you're angry with somebody. But it's worse when you insult them. Because when you insult them, it causes other people to despise them as well. Now, listen carefully, because we oftentimes take this passage and the one that Jesus said that's very similar out of context. You know, we're, we're quick to say, as a matter of fact, James ends up in, with those words, who are you to judge your neighbor? And we like quoting that, and, and here's the context in which we, we do it. You know, Let me tell you what this does not mean this morning, okay? You've got a friend who's having an affair, or you've got a classmate that's cheating in school. They know it, and you know it, and you go lovingly to this Christian friend of yours, and you sit down, and in a kind and gracious manner, you point out the fact that what they're doing is sinful, and they should not be doing it, or they will jeopardize their spiritual walk with the Lord. And the person turns to you angrily and accuses you of judging them. And then they'll say this, you know, Jesus said, do not judge, or you'll be judged. Now, they have just taken Scripture out of context. If you know that they are doing something the Bible says is wrong, and you go to them lovingly and kindly to try and help them with their sin, you are, first of all, not violating anything that Jesus said, and second of all, you are not judging them. God has already pronounced some things to be right and wrong, and when you are trying to help a brother or sister in Christ stay away from sin, you're actually doing the work of God. You're not judging them, God's already cast judgment on certain behavior, you're just trying to help them walk the straight and narrow, and well we should. This whole accusation about judging your neighbor goes to the area of opinions. Not the matter of what God has said is right and wrong, but opinions, and that's where most of our battles take place anyway. My perspective or my view on something is different than your perspective or view on something, and we get angry with one another, we get frustrated with one another, and so, you know, because you feel this way and I feel that way, we don't talk. Haven't you seen that happen before in people's lives? But it's all based on opinion. And I'm here to tell you opinions are just that, they're opinions. My opinion is no better than yours. Your opinion is no better than mine. I have no right to judge you on the basis of my opinion and vice versa. What's more, in the body of Christ, I have no right to put you off because your opinion is different than mine. I just Here's what I need to do. Here's what you need to do. We need to say, I understand that we see these things differently. That's okay. We're still in the body of Christ. We'll still love each other. We're still, we're still family. You see it that way. I see it this way. That's okay. Now, that's the way we're supposed to act. But when you judge somebody on the basis of your opinions, then you're in violation of this text and what Jesus said. You know, in the the Christian church, we've always said we believe this. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, love. Well, let's act like we believe that. When the Bible says something, then let's stand firm on it. But when it comes to our opinions, let's have liberty among us. No opinion is more right than another. And in every aspect, may there be a pervasive sense of love as we deal with one another in the body of Christ. So, if you want to scrutinize something, don't scrutinize somebody else's character. Rather, scrutinize somebody else's needs. That's a good thing to do. Start scrutinizing where somebody needs help, or they need encouragement, or they have a need in their life that you can help meet, and then meet it. Okay, I want to show you a picture of a young lady in our congregation. This is Katie Reeves, and Katie came to me about two weeks ago, and she told me about this great dream that she has, and and, and she had learned about the dental hygiene of people in Haiti and knew that to- tooth- a toothbrush would simply make a huge difference in the life of some people in Haiti. And so she just took that to heart and she said, I'm, I'm just going to start collecting toothbrushes to send to Haiti. I was so impressed with what Katie is doing. I said, Well, we can help. And so throughout the month of June, on these big, wooden boxes that are near our doors that we use for food collection. There should be some kind of a basket there in the next couple of of weeks for you to put in a toothbrush if you want to help Katie reach this goal of meeting needs in Haiti by just sharing a toothbrush. So if you have an extra toothbrush at home, unused, still in its wrapper, all right, and you're not going to use it, then bring it with you, will you please? And put it in those baskets and, and, and help Katie reach this goal. Because, you see, that's what all of us should be doing. Instead of scrutinizing character, then start scrutinizing needs and helping meet those needs in Christ. Well, here's another thing that James says. Don't trust in your ability to analyze. Uh, look at verses 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, we're really great at analyzing things. We, We just analyze everything in our life, and some of it's good. But sometimes we don't analyze well. Uh, We analyze what we should study for the final exam and then find out we studied the wrong stuff. We analyze what would be the best investment that's going to pay a great dividend down the road, and then we wake up later and find out that we chose the wrong place to invest. Or we analyze what would be the best color for this living room that we're going to redecorate, and then you get the paint up on the wall, and you realize, oh, oh, that paint, that that looks awful. And so we have analyzed wrong. Haven't you ever done that? Have you ever misanalyzed something? You know, sometimes you got a problem, you got a situation, and you're trying to analyze what's happening here with this situation, and you just can't figure it out. Several years ago, um, one, of, one of the church secretaries here, her and her family are no longer here, but they, their son was graduating from high school. They had an open house. We were at the open house that afternoon, and this was in the early days of cell phones, okay? And, and, and Karen was working around the kitchen. All of a sudden, the phone rang, and she went to answer the phone. Well, it wasn't her phone that was ringing, and so we thought maybe some phone had gotten lost under coats. And so I was trying to be helpful. Elsie and I were I'm saying, okay, Karen, if I can find the phone, I'll answer it for you. And everywhere I went, I kept saying, I think I'm getting closer. I think I'm getting closer. And I was pulling up coats and looking underneath. I pull up papers and looking underneath them. And finally it dawned on me, it was ringing in my pocket. It was the first cell phone we had that you carry in your pocket. I was so thoroughly embarrassed. I had misanalyzed that whole thing. We do that a lot in life. We misanalyze what's going on. And the biggest area of that is when we look at the future. We, we just keep thinking, well, tomorrow will be like today, and the next day like after, after that, and the next day after that, and the next day after that. All of these things. All, you don't know what's going to happen Tomorrow? Now, God wants us to plan for the future, especially for eternity. Uh, You know, you should plan for your retirement. You should plan for all of these things. But do so with the understanding that you have no idea what tomorrow holds. And when you have no idea, you have to trust Him who does. What's a realistic view of the future? Well, we're not clairvoyant. Just listen to the talk show pundits as they analyze the economy, stock market, unemployment reports, housing industry, and every conceivable polling data known to mankind, and the experts still cannot be united on what's going to happen in the next three months, six months, a year. You see, we have no way of knowing. How could they be united? Everybody's got a different opinion as they read the statistics. Why? Because nobody knows. I think it's one of God's greatest gifts to us that we don't know. I am convinced that if God had let us know the future, we'd be miserable people. Do you know why? Because we would fixate on the bad things. If you knew, if you could see the future, if God revealed that to you, and you knew six months from now somebody you loved dearly would die, you would not be able to enjoy one day between now and the end of that six months realizing that the worst is coming. Tell me this. If you get ten notes in the mail, nine of them are encouraging, and one of them is discouraging, which one do you fixate on? The discouraging one. You get nine pats on the back for a good job, and somebody shakes their finger in your face once, and which one do you remember? You see, that's the way we're too. We always fixate on, on the bad and the negative. If we knew what the future held, we couldn't enjoy this moment. We couldn't enjoy this day. I think it's a gift of God that we don't know. I also think it's a gift of God that we don't know because it means then that we have to trust him. And that's where James goes on and he introduces this whole concept of a mist. He says a mist isn't here for very long. You know, it's, it's here maybe in the morning. A fog rises early in the day, and, the, and as the sun comes up, it burns off the fog. It's here, and then it vanishes. A fog is just a short-lived experience. What's more, a fog seldom leaves a lasting impression. You know, th- th- this doesn't get more encouraging as you stop and think about the attributes of a fog. And some of us are foggier than others when when you stop and think about it. But we're not here for very long. We don't leave a lasting impression. Here's what I mean. People in Indiana may talk about the great Ohio flood of 37 or the blizzard of 78. Around here we talk about the great church fire of 91. But do you remember anybody ever asking you this question? you remember the fog of 2005? Do you remember that mist? Man, was that a nasty mist. Who talks about things like that? You don't remember fogs. Vapors just don't leave lasting impressions. There's just not much to us when you stop and think about it. According to the Bureau of Standards, seven city blocks, a fog of seven city blocks, a hundred feet deep, if you could condense it would not fill one glass of water. Just not much to a fog. James says that's all we are. We're a mist. We're a fog. And so life apart from Jesus Christ doesn't leave lasting impressions. Don't believe me? Go home and pick up the newspaper today and read the obituaries. Whether you're 18 or you're 81, you get about three paragraphs. That's it. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to any of us, which means trusting God is the only way to survive with significance. Who's in charge? God is. Life must be lived within the boundaries of his will. He alone knows what will happen tomorrow. To suggest that we're in control, even of our own lives, is to be guilty of gross arrogance and biblical ignorance. We can only anticipate the future. So analyze all you want. You still won't know what will happen in the next 60 seconds. So how should you live? live it God's way. Understand what is good, and then do it. Because if you understand what's good and you don't do it, James says it's sin. So live your life in a way that will glorify God. Make Him the priority of your time and energy here, because you're not here for long. You're just a mist. And the consequences of not following Him are eternal. So trust Him. Trust Him with your future. He's the only one that knows what lies ahead. Last thing. Don't trust in your ability to economize. Chapter 5, verse 1 and following. James begins with a just a, a harsh word almost. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And he goes through this and he talks about, uh, as we'll see, the things that we do wrong when we put too much trust in our money. We oftentimes don't look at life right. Perhaps you've heard the story about the guy who was walking down the street rather dejectedly. A friend of his saw him and said, well, Joe, what's the matter with you? Oh, he said, I'm going through a tough time. He said, two weeks ago my great aunt died and she left me $100,000. Well, I'm sorry about your great aunt, Joe, but why are you so discouraged? Well, what are you kidding, Joe said. Last week my uncle died and left me $250,000. Well, again, I'm sorry, Joe, but what's so bad about that? What's so bad about that, Joe said? This week? Nothing. Nothing. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, that we'd be able to look at life with a little bit more of a balanced view. So so few of us do. In these days of tough economy and and, um, unforeseen, Seen and unknown futures. We are a little bit more guarded in spending and a little bit more diligent in our savings. But really, it's not about what we can save and how we can cut the budget. It's about trusting God to get us through. Most likely, this passage was directed at the wealthy land barons of the day who used and abused people to make everything possible from a financial standpoint it is likely that not very many of the wealthy land barons were in the church at that day and time, but the people that they used and abused as workers and servers were in the church. And so James is warning the church, don't get caught up in what your boss is caught up in. He's caught up in the things of this world. Don't you do that. You keep your focus well. And then he, and then he warns his readers about this. He said, don't hoard Verse 2 says, Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. In the ancient world, there were three sources of wealth. Number one, what grain you had stored up in your bins. Number two, what clothes you had in your closet, however many clothes you had. And number three, what gold or silver you had stored in a box tucked away. And James says, "That's, that's absurd. When you hoard grain, if you keep it too long, it sours and rots. If you keep clothes hanging in your closet too long, they'll get moth-eaten. And if you put silver and gold in a box and tuck it away and you never spend it, you never use it, then for you it's like they're rusted and corroded and gone away because they're not doing anybody good any good. Just store it away. So don't hoard, he says. Hoarding is an antithesis of faith. Have you ever seen the show Hoarders? You know, they, they go in and, and the people have things piled to the ceiling. You know. And, and I know it's a psychological issue, but it's also a spiritual issue. Because when we hoard, it, it, it means we don't trust God. Now, carefully listen. Hoarding and preparing for the future are not the same thing. Preparing for tomorrow, having a retirement fund set aside, doing your best to anticipate expenses, being a wise steward and manager of what God has entrusted you. That's all important. That's not hoarding. Hoarding is saying, I don't need God. I just need to depend on me. Why do you think Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day, our daily bread? Because he wanted us to trust him every day. Why do you think that the Israelites in the wilderness were told, don't pick up any more manna than what you can eat in one day? Because God wanted them to know that he would provide for them every day. The hoarder doesn't have to trust God. He's got more than he can use, but doesn't even use it. And don't cheat. Verse 4 says, look, the wages you fail to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are c- crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. If you're, if you're a Christian employer, do your best to treat your employees well, fairly, generously, lovingly. Don't cheat them in order to enhance your own gain. Now, you don't have to be an employer to take this to heart. Don't cheat anything. Don't cheat anybody in order to advance your own cause. I never cease to be amazed at when celebrities are caught shoplifting. I'm thinking, why would you do that? You can't spend all the money you've got. Why would you shoplift? Because it's not about the money, it's about the attitude. It's about the heart that's going on here. It's about problems. It's not about trusting God. The spiritual hypocrisy of the wealthy was one of the reasons that one-time theological student and evangelist Vincent Van Gogh abandoned the faith and took up painting in order to find beauty in this world. And really, really, when you stop and think about it, what do you have? So your name is on a deed to a piece of ground in a house. So your name is on a title to a car. So your name is on a bank account. You've got a, you've got a number, a social security number and a bank number and all this kind of good stuff. You've got checks and, and whatever else. You've got a credit card. So your name is there. How much do you really own in this world? You don't own anything. If you're like me, you came into this world empty-handed, you're going to leave this world the same way. We only have these things to use while we are in this world. Don't get too attached to them. Psalm 24:1 says, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You see, you trust Him. You don't, you don't have to cheat anything or anybody. Just trust Him. He'll take care of you if you genuinely trust Him. And don't indulge. Verse 5, He says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. In other words, innocent character, innocent reputations you have done because you are indulging yourself. Now again, it's not about amount, it's about attitude. Indulgence is the attitude that everything I have should be spent on me. Everything I have should be used to make me happy. Once again, wealth is an issue of balance. It is to be enjoyed, but it's also to be shared. And can I remind you this morning, I don't care where you are in comparison to what James is writing about and to whom James is writing about, every one of us in this room would be listed with the wealthy because we are, by standards of this world, wealthy. So these are the problems that we have to face off no matter where we are in our own personal finances. When it comes to opulence and indulgence, uh, I, I remember several years ago when we had been to California for the North American Christian Convention one summer. We stayed an extra couple days and drove up the coast, and we went to uh, San Simeon, the, the Hearst Castle. I don't know if any of you have ever been there or not, but this was the opulent summer home of the famous newspaper uh, magnate, uh, uh, magnate William Randolph Hearst lavish surroundings, it defies explanation in words. We took the tour, went through the whole place. I was just overwhelmed by what I saw. But of all the things I saw, this is one thing that stands out in my mind. I couldn't describe any room that we saw, but this I remember. When we got right back to the beginning in the foyer where the people would come into the house, William Randolph Hearst had installed a payphone for his guests to use so he didn't have to pay for their outgoing calls. Here's a man who had more money he could spend in several lifetimes, and he puts a payphone in for his company to use. Now that's indulgence. It's all about me. And God has called us to leave behind that attitude, to realize that self-indulgence has significant consequences because they put us in contrast to the plan of God. True success and happiness comes from a relationship with the Lord where He provides us with what we cannot have any other way, with a wealth that cannot be measured in dollars and cents, and where we take what we have, our wealth that we enjoy in this country, and we enjoy it and we share it for the sake of the kingdom. Like the sand dunes of northern Indiana, the world's philosophy shift and change with every wind that blows... So anchor your life to the unwavering perspective of God. Be careful who you scrutinize, what you analyze, and how you economize. Only trust God. He'll take care of you. Here's hoping that all of your consequences will be good ones. And the only way to make that happen is to know Jesus Christ as Savior.